Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Clement. So happy to have you joining today. Um, we made it through the first two-year-old sale of the season, at least stateside. We'll be talking a little bit of international two-year-old sales on today's episode as well. Um, I'm exhausted. I feel like I've been on the road um, and just going 90 miles an hour um, all over the place the last week or so. But it's been a lot of fun. It's been really exciting to see. Of course, had the OBS March two-year-old in trading sale um, where we saw some very high numbers as far as the um, the prices of these young two-year-olds going through the ring and so some exciting horses to follow moving forward. I also had the opportunity to visit Aiken, South Carolina this past week which was really fun. If you haven't been, I definitely recommend it. It is a beautiful place especially if you are a fan of horses and not just thoroughbred horse racing. It's really kind of all horse disciplines in one place, which is pretty cool. You know, this weekend they have steeplechase. Last week, where I was when I was there was uh, for the trials. You have a lot of uh, babies uh, racing that you get a chance to see, and a couple of older horses as well. Um, there are there's this amazing uh, woods, the Hitchcock Woods. I had the opportunity to go on a really fun trail ride through the Hitchcock Woods, which was amazing to see. A lot of people fox hunt there. There's a venting polo, you name it, they have it. So really cool experience that, uh, again, if you ever have the opportunity, I would definitely recommend it. And there's a lot of history there too, as far as a horse racing does go with um, Cock Campbell's Dogwood Stable training there in years past, as well as the Big Darley operation. So check it out if you have the time to do so. But um, excited about today's show, and we'll get right into it, recapping some of the sales action that we just saw take place. I'm so happy to welcome in my friend, Alan Carrasso, who's over in Dubai right now, and is going to give us a little bit of an inside look on what the atmosphere is like after the Dubai Breeze Up sale, Dubai World Cup night coming up. Uh, Alan, how are things over in Dubai? Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Keisha. It's, uh, it's really great over here. Um, yeah, I made my first trip over last year, and you know, for a fan of international racing like I am, it was really just fantastic and and not much has changed other than um, there are no COVID restrictions with PCR tests that need to be done at one's own expense this time. So that's definitely a positive, but it's, you know, it's always great to be out trackside and, and getting that to be close with the horses like that, something that I don't get to do terribly often. So being there and then just, you know, fraternizing and, and socializing with fellow media and, and other horse people. It's, you know, it all comes together and it's a great treat, really. You, of course, are an editor for the, the Thurba Daily News, the TDN. And as you mentioned, a great love and a great involvement with international racing. I actually met you for the first time in Hong Kong several years back. Um, tell me a little bit about that and about some of the, the places you've gotten to travel and experience racing. Yeah, so my first trip actually was to Singapore in 2015. Uh, the China Horse Club put on a race there at the Singapore Turf Club um, with some horses that they brought in from all over the world. Um, so that was my first real exposure to travel. And I actually uh, made a trip to Hong Kong in 2000, just a few years after I started at the TDN. Um, that was just a crazy trip, but we can talk about that some other time. And then, you know, from 2015 to 2019, I made the trip each year and then COVID got, got in the way and, and 
sort of tied my hands behind my back. Um, I, I just got um, interested in, I was saying on Laura King's show this morning, it just following international racing and, and racing in um, sort of exotic ports of call just keeps me fresh because um, I love American racing and I have for a long time, but mm -hmm. you know, it does reach a saturation point and it's always nice to have sort of new avenues to pursue and, and keep the energy level and motivation going. So for me, it's always been interesting to, to see the pedigrees and the horses and, and the training and, and the different methodologies and, and things like that. So you know, for me, it's, um, it keeps wind in my sails. I've mm -hmm. always enjoyed doing it. And, and honestly, it gives me an opportunity like this and, and, um, you know, I can't say enough good things about my company that, that invests in me this way to, to cover events like this. It's, it really is a privilege. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, we saw the uh, Dubai Breeze Up sale take place, uh, organized by the Dubai Racing Club. And uh, I saw you posting a lot of great tweets and keeping everybody updated during the sale. And it's kind of interesting to look at some of the pedigrees, a lot of U.S. Um, horses that you might remember and recognize in the family, but horses from around the world involved in this sale. Can you tell us a little bit about what the sale was like? Yeah, it was, um, Yeah, I felt there was a lot of energy there. It was very well attended. Uh, even Sheikh Mohammed was was there with with his advisors, and I thought that added a you know a, a nice little um, bit of energy to the sale. Like you like you mentioned, um, you know, Goff's uh, was in charge of the auctioneering in, in conjunction with the DRC, and you know they've made a concerted effort to buy pedigrees that appeal to this market, which is what any good auction house will do. They'll put in front of the buyers, those horses and those pedigrees that they feel or that they know will will be attractive and, and will will, uh, will do best out here. So that's why you see, you know, sires like Gun Runner and Justify, you know, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why those kinds of horses <laughs> are coveted. But, you know, what I find fascinating, um, is that they acquired American bred horses at Keeneland and, and Fasic Tipton and then fly them over here to Europe to be prepped. So, you know, between September and now we have six months and they go to a winter climate in Europe. They, they do their pre-training and prep for the sale and then ship from Europe. Now, I mean, my ship from America wasn't straightforward. I was dead tired <laughs> afterwards. I I can't imagine what it must be, the stress it puts on a young horse to make that sort of, you know, to do that sort of traveling. It can't be easy, yet they show up, um, you know, they go under tack, they show what the, what, what they have. And then, you know, the next day they're, they're in a sales ring changing hands. So I think it's pretty remarkable. I think horses are pretty remarkable with the things that they're able to do. Um, so, it, you know, it was a, a, a very well-attended sale. The buybacks ended up being a little bit high. And, and the, um, you know, reserve setting is sort of a, a fine art. And consigners have the, the right and the prerogative to define what they feel is a reasonable amount of money for, for their horses. And they can determine that's their decision and theirs alone whether that 
final hammer price is something that they're willing to accept or not. And they mm-hmm. um, can then try to sell the horses on privately or retain them for maybe another sale down the line um, or maybe in some cases even go on to race them. So the um, the sale was was very good by average. I mean, mm-hmm. it averaged better than um, hundred almost 150,000 euros. So say $180,000 thousand dollars uh you know strong median and uh and the gun runner top lot made better than five hundred and forty thousand euros so six hundred thousand some dollars mm-hmm. um and gun runner's done well out here um in fact he's got a horse called sharar he's a three-year-old half brother to lady eli and cost six hundred thousand dollars at um at auction he is trained by a guy called Fozzie Nass. Um, he's actually based in Bahrain, but but races a lot here. And actually, the plan is to send Sharar to the U.S. to be trained by Todd Pletcher um, shortly after the close of of racing here, which is in the next uh, week or two. Sure. Uh, so keep an eye out for him. He could be a horse for yeah. the uh, the three year old Turf Series uh, in New York. A, a lot of things to keep an eye on too, and as you mentioned, with those pedigrees and and the the breeze up format, it was kind of happening around the same time as the OBS two year old sale in Ocala, where so much emphasis is put on how those horses breeze before they go into the sales ring um, here in the states. And it seemed like it was a little bit more. Yes, they're they're going to breeze when they're there in Dubai, but it seemed like there wasn't so much of an emphasis on the time from from the glimpses that I had um, on that. It was more a focus on how the horse moved and, as you said, the rigors that the horse was able to go through um, and be pretty durable to, to go through this sale. I think all of that goes into it. And mm-hmm. the um, head auctioneer from Goss and chief executive is Harry, uh, I'm sorry, Henry Beebe. Mm-hmm. And his father in, in the 1970s, founded really was the force behind the idea of a breeze up sale for two-year-olds and Goffs and the Dubai Racing Club sort of struck a deal and came to an understanding that they're not going to put these horses through the stress of you know asking for an all-out furlong or two furlongs and rather they just want them to click up at three-quarter speed um, show what they can do so that the prospective buyers can focus not on the time, but rather on how the horses are moving, their physicality, um, you know, their, their confirmation and things like that. So I think, um, I mean, obviously that's a discussion that could take up a, a whole nother hour on a podcast <laughs> of, you know, what's what's the right thing to do. But obviously by, you know, judging by the results of the sale, it's not something that buyers in this part of the world are particularly concerned about um you know any horse really should be able to go pretty quickly mm-hmm. if they're asked for an all-out effort for a furlong what does that you know what does that prove really what what does that show mm-hmm. and of course there's there's always going to be a correlation between the 20 and 3 breezer and the 2 million dollar sales topper there's always mm-hmm. going to be that that correlation it's not always one to one though Fast breezers don't always sell well. Um, you know, it depends on what's on their X-rays and things like that. But for the sale, it obviously works. Personally, I I love the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I really had a good time um, following along with what was happening, and it seems like we'll have a chance to 
get to see some nice horses on the racetrack soon coming out of that sale too, given some of the pedigrees that were in there. Um, but uh, Dubai World Cup night coming up this weekend. The field is drawn. You have Pantalasa who won the Saudi Cup last year's Dubai World Cup winner country grammar. Seems like a really interesting field. You know, I, I was saying uh, I was on the local program this morning with Laura King and mm -hmm. I was saying some people have said this is not the greatest renewal, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it is a $12 million horse race. Sure. And for me, from an, from an intrigue standpoint, you've got eight horses from Japan. Now, think back. Mm -hmm. 1996 was the first renewal of the World Cup. It was won by Cigar, beat Soul of the Matter, really put the race on the map. To think here we are sitting 27 years later and we have one horse from the U.S. country grammar going for uh, going for a repeat and eight horses from Japan who, uh, you know, any one of them could pop up and win. You just Japan has this conquer the world mentality and they, and they just um, they just they're ambitious and they take chances that maybe mm -hmm. we don't do here or people don't do in other parts of the world and you see with a horse like like pantalasa I, he had only raced on the dirt one time prior to saudi but and then he had the the inside stall to deal with but he mm -hmm. he broke away perfectly and and it was game set and match so um the variable took place last night at the draw <laughs> pantalasa drew 15 of 15 mm -hmm. country grammar drew 14 of 15 and then the local horse Algiers, who won, posted two stunning efforts, winning a couple of prep races during the carnival. He drew in thirteen, and the Crown Pride, who won the UAE Derby last year, drew in twelve. He's got some speed. So, I it you know the draw made for me a fascinating race that much more fascinating. Um, we'll see what happens. Um, you know. We, we know that Yoshito Yahagi is um, a very bold man. He's very confident. Um, he's winner of two British Cup races, winner of races all over the world, Australia and here and Saudi. And, um, you know, the guy knows what he's doing. So <laughs> Anthalasa obviously goes in there with a, with a giant, giant chance. Um, you know, the configuration, there's a short run to the first turn. He's drawn way out there. So he'll have to jump and run and do his best to to clear as much of the inside traffic as as he can mm -hmm. it certainly makes you know it certainly made his task uh, much more difficult i think tactically speaking as you said that's one of the most interesting pieces of it and um on top of that, I think Japan's global domination. I got a chance to have um, Kate Hunter on a previous episode of this show, who, uh, of course, has worked so well in making possible for these Japanese runners to race all over the world. And she kind of reflected back on the, the growth of the breeding industry in Japan, as you mentioned, the wanting to be part of these big races and We've seen it on the world stage, whether it's Saudi and the Breeders' Cup. As somebody like you who has spent so much time covering international racing and traveling to other places, can you reflect a little bit on this kind of phenomenon that we're seeing with those Japanese horses at the highest level? I guess, you know, like I said, um, if you don't, you know, if you don't play, you can't win. So there's, you know, there has to be a mindset. Like you have to want 
to travel your horses and you have to have that sort of that fighting spirit and that um you know that gene let's say you have to have the will to, to travel and um you can't begrudge anybody um from here let's say american trainers don't particularly like traveling mm -hmm. um you have trainers like grand motion who will send the occasional horse to to ask it and and you know there's a subset of owners that is uh, that would rather run in a race like the platinum jubilee stakes as opposed to the jiper stakes and really you can't hold that against them you can't say oh it's un-american because you don't want to run at belmont on belmont <laughs> stakes weekend um yeah there's just a there's a mentality that you want to test your horse against horses that you otherwise wouldn't and see how you stack up um you know a horse like bucaro a few years ago um you know, great horse, turf sprinter winning at Keeneland and, and iron horse racing was of that mentality. They took that chance. He went over to ask it, faced a horse called Blue Point from, from Godolphin, who was an absolute turf monster and ran just a blinder and finished fifth, beaten four lengths. Now, it didn't necessarily help pad his resume as a stallion, but there's that sort of that uh that fighting spirit and you just want to play the game at that level on those different stages so i you know i love it i don't begrudge anybody who doesn't want to do it um you know there are some trainers that let's say will remain unnamed that are really reticent about doing it that have the stock to do it if they wanted to um but but they don't and for, you know for me it increases um the interest level it, it it's a new dimension it opens up um sort of a new frontier for for us as racing fans and you know for for people that own them just one american horse in the dubai world cup but there are five u.s uh contenders in the golden shaheen which the u.s in history has had um success with too it seems like that's the race that people are more willing to kind of take a big chance with right now yeah, for sure. Like you said, it, it, you're going as, as far back as you can go with horses like the Big Jag and and Call of One in the late '90s and and early 2000s. Um, right, it's a horse. Obviously, you know we um, American horses do dominate the, those types of races, mm -hmm. um, and yes, and honestly, I mean. This, the Saudi Cup and being able to do that double, it's a, you know, it's a 600 mile ship from, from Riyadh to Dubai, which is a whole lot different than 6,000 miles from Miami to Dubai. So, <laughs> so being there and having run in a race like the Saudi sprint, like, like Gunnett has done, um, you know, it's an hour or an hour and a half flight over mm -hmm. to Dubai and, you know, it's an easy race to, to go back to back. I also don't think anybody's upset that one elite power did not try to do the double. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, also kind of fascinating is um, there are three Chad Brown horses, former Chad Brown horses, two of which are in the Shaheen um, the horse called sound money yeah. is he won the local course and distance prep a few weeks ago. He used to be trained by Chad. He's a five-year-old, horse by flatter 
And then Switzerland, who won the race last year, he's he's a nine-year-old mm-hmm. and won won the race last year at eight. And he's had just one start since. It was a six furlong race in January, but he won it. And you know, you can't you can't dismiss him either. So yeah, you know, it's a good race. It's a competitive race. I I, I have to be honest, I'm such a fan of, of Japanese racing that mm-hmm. I'm a little I get a little bit of tunnel vision on these races i don't necessarily think that just because we have five in there that we're necessarily going to win the race um i really like a horse called remake who i thought the track was a little bit against him he was third in the in the uh, saudi sprint he was two lengths behind gunnett but i thought the track might have been a little bit against him i think if um you know people are listening and and maybe investing a few dollars on saturday remake might not be the worst idea he's the son of of lonnie who we all remember oh we we remember him fondly he has a (laughs) has a little bit of a cult following i think with those that saw him here in america um well that'll be really fun uh, to follow alan um i know that you're so busy this week best of luck this weekend enjoy it can't wait to follow um your photos on social media and, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show you're welcome, Keisha. Thanks for asking. So happy to welcome in special guest Joe Applebaum, president of NYTHA, and also somebody that's involved in the sales world as well. He has his hand pretty much in everything. Joe, I'm really happy to have you on today. Thanks for joining me. Keisha, it's great to be on. Um, as I mentioned, uh, some people may not necessarily realize that you are very involved in the sales side of the horse racing industry as well with the off the hook consignment. Um, tell me a little bit about off the hook and and uh, how it came about that, to be involved in that part of this world. Sure. We started almost 20 years ago. I think it's about 18, if I, if I have my count right. Um, me and a bunch of friends were racing horses at the track. And we met a trainer named Carlos Morales, um, who had recently won the Met Mile with a horse named Yankee Victor. Mm-hmm. And we gave him a claiming horse that we have. And quite frankly, he said to us, he said, yeah, your horse is not very talented. Why don't we get rid of him, sell him, throw in a little more money, and I'll go buy you a young horse. Uh, I'm much better at developing young horses than you know improving claiming stock. And so that's what we did. We went to uh, Keeneland, September sale. On the second to last day, bought a siphon filly, um, a a lovely gray siphon filly, (laughs) I think for $60,000. And she was the sale topper, uh, you know, late in the sale. And we sent her down to Ocala to be broken. And uh, a few months later, they called me and they said, we want to enter in this two-year-old sale. Mm-hmm. To be quite honest, my friends and I didn't even know what a two-year-old sale was. <laughs> um, we were like, what is that? Why would we want to sell her? If she's so good, why wouldn't we race her? Um, and they convinced us that this was the right thing to do and whatever. Long story short, uh, Aaron Jones wound up buying her for about half a million dollars. Um, <laughs> and after that, we were hooked. The next year we would, did two pin hooks, the year after 16, um, et cetera. So fast forward, we're doing less pin hooks now. We do some, but a lot of what we're selling are either homebreds, our own homebreds, or partners, clients, friends, homebreds. 
um, and some plenty of pinhooks still. But so the business has evolved a little bit. I've gotten to be uh, very close to one of your pinhooking successes, a city man who um, I know uh, sold as a two-year-old and is just a horse that's gotten better with age and multiple graded stakes winning New York bread. Um, talk a little bit about following along with that horse and just what it means to sell a horse that goes on to do really exciting things on the racetrack. Well, there's nothing that makes you more proud. I guess it's kind of like being a grandparent, <laughs> watching uh, the horses that have come through your program succeed, especially one like City Man, who's won, I think, eight state races. Mm -hmm. He's run, you know, even though in New York bred, he's won, he's won Open Company, he's won in Florida. You know, he he's really become quite a popular horse, I think, because he's run uh, frequently mm -hmm. and over a, a long number of years, too, now. Um, he resulted, we went up to Phasic Tipton October, which was uh, one of my favorite secret sales, you know, that not a lot of people came to. Um, and it's a great time to be in Saratoga in mid um, to be in Saratoga in mid-October. It sounds like I'm rhyming. Um, you know, it's a great time of year. You can get some good food. The trees are changing. And we bought him there with a few other horses. Uh, kind of moderately priced. He was by Mucho Macho Man, uh, who we always had affection for uh, because he beat a horse that we campaigned named Turbo Compressor mm -hmm. uh, in the Florida Million back when they used to have those Sunshine Million races. Um, so that was kind of one of the things we did. The yearling markets were heating up. So we figured, let's go and buy some weanlings. Uh, so we went up to Saratoga, bought a bunch of New York bred weanlings, uh, and City Man turned out to be best in class. And I know that you are a huge proponent of the New York bred program, and just seeing the the growth of the program of the over the last several years has really been amazing. All the the great opportunities for horsemen and for owners, but also just the the strength and the quality of the bloodstock in New York too. Uh, we're big believers. I think it gives you a chance to develop a horse uh, more, uh, uh, what's the right word? Uh, you don't have to push them along. Mm -hmm. You don't have to jump into races with the very best, uh, horses in the country. You know, if you go into an open maiden race at Naira, you, you have the very best horses with the very best trainers, with the very best jockeys, and you could run fourth and have a great horse. Mm -hmm. And if you have a New York bred who has some ability like that, to be able to bring them along a little more slowly, to build up their confidence, to not let them be taxed so physically early in their career makes a great difference. Um, and it, there's never been better times for the New York bread program right now. Their yearlings are selling amazingly. We have a full slate of races for them, including stakes races. It, it's really, you know, a, a real great time to have New York breads. And I know that um, we saw several New York breads or a handful of New York breads, I should say, from the off the hook consignment at the recent OBS March two-year-old sale. Um, tell me a little bit uh, about how things went. I saw, especially uh, the St. Patrick's Day had a very fast workout, that one, a Florida bread, but it has to be really exciting to see those two-year-olds going through the ring and selling well. Yeah, we. so it's interesting. We mostly focus our sales on um on april mm -hmm. that's kind of been our our want 
Uh, we the last two years we've brought some horses to march at the uh, encouragement of the sales company, who's mm-hmm. hoping to uh, distribute the horses more evenly through through throughout its sales. So these weren't the strongest group. The St. Patrick's Day uh, was, I thought, amazing. Uh, he had a really nice workout in 10 flat. He galloped out nicely and really retained his body weight and composure throughout the week. I think that's one thing. I, I think it's something you might relate to actually <laughs> uh, coming coming from the competition arena, right? Like yeah. it, it, maintaining your physicality, maintaining your composure, maintaining uh, your wits about you for the horse throughout the week, throughout this process with people coming to judge you and view you um, is really, for me, a critical component in figuring out which horses will eventually succeed at the racetrack. And these sales have become so very competitive, especially the two-year-old sales where it seems everybody kind of uh, knows who the big horses of the sale are going to be. And then the the middle ones, so to speak, everybody thinks, okay, this horse is going to be value. And then that horse ends up being more expensive than one might expect. Uh, tell me a little bit about trying to get a horse to stand out and to be successful in the right kind of sale, particularly with these two-year-olds. Well, uh, that's a great question. One one in which I'm always flummoxed by because <laughs> I always feel we're not getting the, some of our horses don't get the due they deserve. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I think at the top of the market, what you're seeing now is horses with the right topside pedigree, meaning the right stallion pedigree, mm-hmm. uh, who work fast, who have nice gallop outs, who hold up well under a week of scrutiny. They're going to bring a lot of money. Uh, interestingly, from my perspective, is female pedigree seems to be undervalued in the market. So mm-hmm. for those of you who are shopping out there, that might be something you want to focus on. I think uh, so what's happening is you're, you're right, is that people are coalescing around the similar names. Um, but what happens in essence is that you are leaving uh, value on the table for others who are willing to take a chance with either a non-commercial sire or uh, or willing to live with a physical abnormality that, uh, you know, that a trainer feels they can work through. So there's, there's room for value there. And to be honest, that's typically where our consignment fits in. Mm-hmm. We're amongst very high amongst the leaders in horses getting horses performance at the track. We're, we're right up there in the top two or three in terms of percentage of stakes winners, in terms of how much money you're, you're getting back in earnings compared to your sales price. So we try to find a niche of affordable horses that are going to produce at the racetrack. And what that's allowed us to do is to have clients who come back to us year over year, right? So uh, let's talk about City Man, <clears throat> right? Uh, Jimmy Gladwell mm-hmm. and Dean Reeves are always stopping by our consignment, yeah. right? We have a happy customer. We have a satisfied customer. They know the sort of horses we produce, even if they don't have fancy sire names. What are some of the things we can look forward to uh, in April? Because I know that that's a sale that everybody says, okay, March is done. Now let's turn our attention right onto the April sale next. Yes. Well, the April sale has become uh, like the granddaddy of all the sales. When I started out, we we would have had three sales already by now. Mm -hmm. You would have had two sales down at Calder, one from Phasig, one from OBS. 
you'd have had this sale and you might have even had a sale out in California already. And April was, I used to get upset when they pushed our horses to April. Now I don't want to leave April. We've just had so much success there. So much success, like up and down the ladder. So to give you an example, we sold a filly there years ago named Gamdangibara. That's Korean. And I'm sure I butchered the name, but she went on to earn over $3 million in Korea. Mm -hmm. Right. We, excuse me, last year we sold a cloud computing uh, colt for a few hundred thousand dollars who is now going to be in the Arkansas Derby um, Mm -hmm. to to Eagles Island. Um, So what you have at April, which you, I think better than any other sale is the opportunity to buy quality racehorses at uh, at every price point. Mm-hmm. And there are buyers at every price point at that sale because now it's seen as the sale to be at. Not unlike Keeneland, September, mm-hmm. everyone feels they need to be there because there's everything from a million dollar horse to you know a $10,000 horse. And I think you see that in April so you have a lot of price support throughout the levels, at least from a, a seller standpoint. A sale for a, a yearling, a two-year-old, an older horse, each horse is prepped differently for the sales. And I know that um, with with your consignment and your partnership with Carlos, you kind of have that, that trainer side and um, all the experience that both of you bring. And tell me a little bit about prepping a horse for a two-year-old sale and what goes into getting a horse ready for those particular kind of figures that that horse will go through. That's a great, great question. So Carlos and I both started at the racetrack, Mm -hmm. right? Carlos was a trainer for 20 years at the track, um, both in Venezuela and the United States. And I started as a fan, as a gambler first, and then started buying into horses. So we always think of how do we prep this horse so that it will be a good finished product once it gets to the track. The sale is only one step along that process. Right. Mm -hmm. I will say early in our career, we were less confident in our ability to manage that process. So we would often work horses, probably overwork them in, let's say, January and February. So you know what you have when you get to the sale, so to speak. I think we've learned a lot in these last 20 years. And now we try to bring the horse in uh, almost under uh, under prepared a little bit so that you're getting their finest effort at the sales ground and we haven't used up too much energy uh, along the way, haven't exposed them to additional injury risk along the way. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been a real important evolution in our training is that we're much more confident in our ability to understand where a horse is at uh, doing that. We put a lot of miles, just jogging miles, galloping, around the track to put a real base in the horse. I think this is probably more what you're getting at. But uh, the the first thing we do in October is we use a like a non-confrontational breaking technique uh, that we learned several years ago, probably 15 years ago, that has been wonderful for our horses. We have them up doing figure eights, um, literally like in day two of, of the breaking process it's really taken a lot of the fighting away that one typically identifies with breaking. We probably shouldn't even call it breaking anymore. Mm -hmm. It's probably not the best word. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what we do is we spend a lot of time on 
teaching the rules of the road, what's expected on the track from the horse, right? It's a lot of like behavioralist training. And then we put a lot of time into building a base, a good foundation, making sure they're staying healthy, making sure they're developing their aerobic and anaerobic system to that much. And then as you get closer to the sale, I would say we're about a month out uh, of the sale. Now we'll start kind of tightening uh, tightening the screws a little to, to hone their speed down so they're able to show themselves off on, on breeze show day. There's just so much that goes into it and, and um, takes a lot of knowledge as a horseman too to get that horse ready. Um, so much respect for, for all of you who prep horses for these sales. I wanted to switch gears a little bit though, Joe, because we saw something uh, really cool happen this past week. Over 100 people in Albany uh, supporting a plan to modernize Belmont Park. And this rally seems so successful. And, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about exactly what took place, what we're fighting for, and uh, for those who may not be familiar, why this is so important to the state of New York. Absolutely. First, I want to correct you a little. It was yeah. 200 people. 200. I, That's I can't, great. The, the, everyone says over 100. I said, yes, we had 200 people. I don't understand. Um, <laughs> It, it was it was an amazing show of solidarity and support for our, our sport in, in New York. I've been going to Albany for almost 10 years now. I've walked by a lot of these demonstrations, a lot of people, whether it's uh, for schools or for less taxes, more taxes, housing, mm -hmm. Medicare, you I see them all. It's rare that you see 200 loud, boisterous people together. Yeah. It's usually 10. It's usually 20 people. You know, a couple people come out. We had over 200 people. We had eight elected officials there, Democrats and Republicans. It was amazing to see this bip bipartisan effort on the Belmont redevelopment process project. I'm so proud of our community, right? Mm -hmm. We had a bus that we took from Belmont up. We had trainers like Bruce Brown and Dave Donk on that bus. We had Keith Dolishow, the Naira Racing Secretary. We had backstretch workers. We had our friends at best and the chaplaincy on that bus. It was unbelievable. We also got a bus of farm uh, owners and workers down from Saratoga. Mm -hmm. So you really saw the breadth of our sport within the state. It's upstate, it's downstate, it's urban, suburban, and rural and it was amazing. Ramon Dominguez there is a Hall of Fame jockey. Mm -hmm. Richie Migliori was there. We had so many people. We had union workers. We had plumbers. We had um, carpenters union. This is what we need to tell people who we are. I think too often, Acacia, we're embarrassed or we are, uh, I don't know, we're not vocal enough uh, to the public about how many jobs we are, that we're real people. Uh, a lot of guys have been making fun of me, but it's what we combat when you go to Albany. Yeah. We're not just billionaires in seersucker suits. Yeah. Yep, we have a few of those for sure. <laughs> okay, that's fine. But we're mostly working people, just regular old people, right? And it's, you know, that's who we are. And I think it's important that we change the perception of the sport if you want political support. Mm -hmm. 
And I know you basically grew up on the Belmont backside and, and I owe everything I've had to horses and, and, you know, we are very familiar with that. But I think your point is so interesting too about all of the different people that it takes for one horse to run from the very beginning of that horse's conception right to that horse um, on the racetrack. It's not just a trainer and a jockey and an owner. There's so many people associated with every horse that we see racing. It, it's amazing when you think about it be, between veterinarians or how about the guy who drives the truck for the feed store? Mm -hmm. Okay. Just a regular guy driving a truck. But if he doesn't deliver feed to my farm, how are my horses getting fed? Right. How about the guy who's removing uh, used hay and straw? Like th there's so many jobs that the tentacles of this are so wide, not only the horses, but what about it? If at the track to put on the show, yeah. right? Like, we don't realize Naira employs gardeners and uh, plumbers and steam fitters and electricians and carpenters and, and not just to build big projects, just to keep the show on, you know, uh, look at all the people in TV production that you deal with, you know, like it's, it's a big operation that people uh, underestimate. For this this Belmont uh, redevelopment and and the modernization, I, I thought it was amazing looking at the numbers about how it would create 3,700 construction-related jobs and, and not to mention the revenue that would be created in renovating Belmont Park. And Belmont is some place that I know we all hold so dear, and it's exciting to see what it would contribute to the greater community. I couldn't agree with you more. I think you're going to get a surge of construction jobs, obviously, to either bring down or transform our Titanic-like building uh, <laughs> into something a little more modern. I think if you've if you've been around Belmont for the last nine months, and I know most of the public hasn't, uh, but you can see the construction efforts in the infield with the tunnel and the drainage systems and the pond and all the thing that Glenn Kozak and his team have been doing, you see all the people there. Uh, you see the backhoes, you see the dozers, you see the huge piles of sand and you can see now that's just to do a tunnel and some drainage. Yeah. We're not talking about like a massive uh, building project like this, right? So it's, it's really going to be a huge boon to the construction unions, a huge boon to the neighborhood. I think Naira also projects that they're going to add additional like 300 full-time jobs, mm -hmm. right? Like Amazing. those 3,700 jobs are, are temporary. They come in, they build a project for a few years, and then they move on and they build another project. That's great. That's how yeah. most construction works. But I think Naira's figuring that there's going to be a few hundred additional full-time jobs as the result of this. Um, not only that, it's going to just transform a physical plant that's just in dire need of, of updating. Um, and I, I think it's so exciting for our ability to host modern horse racing um, that, that we have the tools necessary to do that, right? If we just want to stay stuck in the past. And one of the great things about our business, Acacia, is that we have this history, that we have this tradition, mm -hmm. that we have a respect for the past. But we can allow that 
to hold us back in terms of being a modern sport. I know you and the TV team are on the forefront of that with Fox, but we have to be able to deliver our product to people in a way that's recognizable to them in the modern sports landscape, right? That's making sure we have the best angles on our TV shots. It's making sure we have the best data delivery, right? Like you see now in NFL games, they can tell you how fast the players are running at any particular moment, right? Like, by redoing Belmont, we not only redo the grandstand and make like cushier seats, but you give us the chance to build out that sort of infrastructure mm-hmm. that allows us to, to really host modern sporting events. All very exciting stuff. What are some ways that people who want to support uh, the modern, modernization of Belmont or want to support all of the initiatives that, that NYTHA is uh, doing, what are some ways that people can help? First thing you can do, if you live in New York, you can uh, call your assembly person or your state senator. If you need help doing that, you can call the NYTHA office or email us uh, and we'll help you find who that is and how to hone that message. Uh, NYTHA supports, if you want to help with the NYTHA cause, and and I'd love to talk about that for a little bit, if you don't mind. Please. What does NYTHA do? Uh, NYTHA being the New York Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association, we represent all the trainers and owners who race at Naira racetracks. So that's Belmont, Aqueduct, Saratoga. So yes, we do play a role. We negotiate purse levels with Naira and we do things like represent our interests in Albany. But the most of what we do, three quarters of the money we take in and more than three quarters of our efforts go to uh, helping backstretch workers mm-hmm. and providing a better community to them. So we help fund the best backstretch clinic in partnership with Northwell Health. Every backstretch worker can go to the clinic for free and get free health care. Uh, we help fund, uh, excuse me, a scholarship program for the children of backstretch workers, usually the, to the tune of $200,000 to $250,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we fund Anna House, uh, which is on the both the Belmont backside and I think soon to be the Saratoga backside. Um, we help fund the chaplaincy, which provides support to our workers. So we, we work on a lot of programs that help our working uh, people on the backside, their children's and their families, so they can have a more sustainable existence here. Um, so if you're interested in donating to any of those, please give us mm-hmm. a call and we can we can see that your money gets to the right place. You all do amazing work. I'm, I'm so proud to be part of the New York community. And there's there's such a feeling of looking after uh, your neighbor, so to speak, which uh, I think is really, really special to find on the Naira backside and in large part because of the presence of NYTHA. Um, and uh, I just definitely applaud all of the work that you all are doing. And it's important to continue, as you said, Joe, the, the future of our sport. If we don't have a healthy work staff, first mm-hmm. off, thank you for the for the, the plaudits. But <laughs> I really think if you don't have a healthy work staff, if they're not supported and cared for, uh, we have nothing, mm-hmm. right? We know one, this is a largely uh, immigrant community, right? Who are here often away from their families, trying to build a new life, often trying to send money home to their families to give them a kind of taste of the American dream as it mm-hmm. were. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and two, 
it's hard to have those sort of laborer jobs in New York, right? Mm -hmm. New York's an expensive place to live. It's hard to, to keep up here, especially in those sort of jobs. So I think it's critical that we provide this support to these workers. Well, uh, I'm really, uh, like I said, so uh, honored to have you on and hear everything uh, that uh, is going on with NYTHA. And uh, again, big congratulations on the successful rally last week. We're excited to follow all that's going on at Belmont Park. Joe, thank you so much for coming on today. Acacia, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I'll, I'll see you at Aqueduct or Belmont soon enough. That's it for another episode of In the Ring. A big thank you to Joe Applebaum and Alan Carrasso. Um, hope you had as much fun as I did listening to these two gentlemen talk. Um, we fun to follow along with Dubai World Cup night. You can watch it um, on Fox Sports. Actually, America State the Races uh, will have the opportunity to show the Dubai World Cup card, or at least most of it. So make sure to check that out. Um, be sure, as always, to head on over to In the Money Media and take a look at all of the great content from my colleagues over there and stay tuned for a lot more action still to come. Next on the docket is the OBS April two-year-old in training sale. Um, we'll also have a few more recaps of all that took place at the March sale that just passed. And um, soon enough in April, we'll have an opportunity to see some of the two-year-olds debuting at Keeneland in Florida and New York. Um, and it'll be really, really exciting time of year. The dream is very much alive. That's what we say this time of year. So I'll see you next Next time on In the Ring, please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it. And thanks, as always, for listening.